by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe continually everything I have commanded you, and know that I am with you every day until the end of this age. May God bless the reading of his word. Matthew wrote a book, a book that tells what he sincerely believed to be the most important story that has ever been told. His book is about the story of the life and work of one Jesus of Nazareth, whom he believed to be the very Son of God, God's Messiah, God's anointed one, who came to call us back to God, to call us to the kingdom of God. And in fact, to he himself become the way that we could enter into the kingdom of God. Matthew was passionate about telling this story. And the section we just read contains the concluding words of Matthew's story, or as we call it, the gospel, according to Matthew. In these words, he brings to a conclusion what he's been trying to tell us about who Jesus is, who he was, who he continues to be. And as he brings his story to a close, he wants to tell us the so what, or maybe we could say the what now. What does all this mean that Jesus lived and died and was resurrected? I believe that Matthew agonized over choosing just the right words. As he closed his book, he wanted people to have a message deep buried in their hearts, a message that would motivate them, a message that would lead them to do what Jesus had called them to do. So I believe that he agonized as he chose these words. I believe that he prayed for the guidance of the Holy Spirit as he finished his story. And I also believe that he got that guidance, that the Holy Spirit was with him as he crafted this final story of the earthly ministry of Jesus. So this morning, in the moments that we have left, I want us to give these words their due, to go back over them and to let them sink deeply into our hearts so that as we leave this place, we will know the answer to the question, what now? We will let Matthew challenge us to act upon the truth of the story and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, opens like this. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. You know, it's an interesting thing that if you only read Matthew's story, now I know we've got Mark and Luke and John, and we know even more details about what happened in this particular time after the resurrection and before the ascension. But if we read only Matthew's story, this is going to be the only time that these 11 disciples encounter the risen Jesus. 
Now, I'm not saying that Matthew didn't know there were other times, but I believe he chose to tell us the story in this way because he wants us to know that this is such an important meeting, that up until this time, the 11 disciples had not seen the risen Jesus. If you back up to the first part of chapter 28, you know the story of the women going out to the tomb to visit the tomb of Jesus, how there was an earthquake, how the stone was rolled away, how this angel appeared to them and said, you're looking for Jesus, but Jesus is not here. He is risen. Now go back and tell his disciples, these 11, that they're supposed to go to Galilee and he will see them there. If we keep reading the story, we know that the women turned and were running back to town to tell the disciples, go to Galilee and Jesus will see you there. But on the way, they run into Jesus himself and they bow down and they worship him. And what does he tell them? Get up, keep on going, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee. So here they are. Now, evidently he had told them to go to a particular mountain. Be interesting to know when he told them that. Matthew doesn't really tell us that. It could be that that was a part of the instructions given to the women to tell the disciples, and it's just not in here. Or it could be that some other time during his ministry, while he was in Galilee, one day he pointed up to a mountain and said, someday I'm going to call you to come to that mountain. And when I tell you to come to see me on that mountain, that's where you're supposed to go. Mountains are important in Matthew's telling of the story. If we back up to the first part of the story, Jesus one day walked up to the top of a mountain, thousands of people gathered around, and he began to teach and to preach. And in there we have what we now call the Sermon on the Mountain. Oh, we call it Sermon on the Mount for some reason. But it's a sermon that Jesus preached from the mountain. And in this sermon, he crystallizes his basic commandments of what it means to live within the kingdom of God, what it means to be a child of God, who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do. And then midway through his ministry, he calls three of his disciples up on a mountain. And there he is transfigured from just being earthly Jesus to showing his glory and who he really was. We call that the mountain of transfiguration. And now here at the end of the experience that the disciples are going to have with Jesus in body before them, he calls them once again to come and to go to the mountain. When they saw him, they worshiped. And why wouldn't they? This is what the women did when they encountered Jesus on the road back to Jerusalem. Here he was, their good friend, their Lord, their Messiah, the one they knew had died, and yet there he was. There wasn't anything to do but to fall down before him and to worship. However, it's interesting how Matthew tells this story. Because right after he says that, he says, but they were hesitant. Now, in your version, it may say that some were hesitant. That's really not the way Matthew says it. What he says is they worshiped, but they were hesitant. 
or they doubted. What's the problem here? These guys know that life as they know it is about to change. Everything that they thought they could count on, what are the two things that are surest in life? Death and taxes, right. Well, Jesus had a lot to say about taxes. We're not going to worry about that. But he had changed death itself. Death was no longer a surety. It was no longer the final thing in life. Everything was about to change for them. And they were hesitant. What do we do? Do we jump full speed into this thing or not? It's interesting that Matthew is the only writer in the Bible to use this word that's translated here, hesitant, or maybe in your version, doubt. He's the only one to use that word, and he only uses it one other time. And he uses it whenever Peter was riding in the boat and Jesus came out walking on the water and Peter decided he wanted to get out of the boat and walk to Jesus. And then he sees the wind and all of this. And what does he do? Hesitates. Do I go to Jesus? Do I run back to the boat? Do I go to Jesus? Do I run back to the boat? And that's where these disciples are. Are they going to jump into this or not? Jesus had called them already to do so much. He's about to call them to do so much more. Which way do we go? I can relate to that, can't you? Have you, any of you ever worshipped and doubted at the same time? Well, here's where these guys are. Well, Jesus being the ever-compassionate person that he is, he comes near to them. That's another interesting thing in Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, he talks a lot of times about people drawing near to Jesus. Only twice does Jesus come near to the disciples. Here and on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they were blown away by his glory. In his mercy and his grace, he comes near to them. And he says these words, and hear these words in the context of a group of people that are scared to death. He says... All power or authority in heaven and on the earth have been given to me. Now, certainly when we hear those words, we know that Jesus is exalted. All hell the power of Jesus' name. And that's a great thing to carry away from there. But in this context, with these disciples, torn, not knowing what to do, to know that the one who is about to commission them the one that is about to tell them the so what and the what now is in control of everything in the whole universe. All power, all authority has now been given to me. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus had sent the disciples out on what we call the limited commission, where he told them to go only to the house of Israel. And he gave them limited powers. Powers, yes. Powers over unclean spirits. Powers over illnesses. He's about to open that door wide. Not only is it not going to be the limited commission, it's going to be the great commission. So as he comes to them, he says, you can trust me. Guys, paraphrase it, say, if you'll depend on me, we could get this thing done. Well, what does he tell them to do? Well, we know the story. Therefore, he says, as you are going, make disciples 
of all ethnicities. Now, I don't know those of you who have memorized this passage in the past, that sounds a little bit different. It's a very literal translation, and it's in its correct order. It doesn't shift things around. And one thing we notice is that in what Jesus said, there is only one command that he gives them. For you English majors, one imperative, all right? There's only one thing he tells them to do, and that is to make disciples. He's going to attach three participles to it that describe what they do in the context in which they do that. He says, as you are going, well, he knows they're going to have to go. He knows they're going to go really until all the world as they know it. These 11 disciples have a commission to take out Jesus' name to the whole world. It had never been carried beyond the borders of the nation of Israel up until this time. But he also knows that he's talking to us. And Matthew knows that he's talking to us. He's also giving us the so what or the what now. And what he's saying is, as you go, as you live, in your journeys, in this journey that you call life, what is to be the thing that's on your heart? What is to be the driving passion of your life? As you're living, as you're going, look for ways to make disciples. That is the greatest gift you can give anyone you encounter, is that you call them to discipleship of Jesus, to be a follower of his, to commit their life to him, to find in him the way to God. So as you're going, make disciples no longer just of this people that we call Israel, God's chosen people, for now God has blown open the doors, and it doesn't matter what nation you're from, it doesn't matter what color your skin is, it doesn't matter if you're male or female or what status you have in life, everyone now receives the invitation to come and follow me. After that, he adds a couple of other participles. Don't you love the word participle? That's kind of a fun word. That's just an I-N-G word. And what he does is, if you want to know the technicality, he doesn't put an article with the participle, so therefore the participle is defining how you do this. Aren't you glad? Okay, here we go. Here's how you do it. Here's what you do if you, if you want someone to become a disciple of Jesus. You baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism had come along really as far as we know. Now, we don't know the whole story, but it burst on the scene in our biblical account with John the Baptist, didn't it? When John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for discipleship to Jesus, he came out baptizing, calling upon people to confess that they were sinners, to confess that they had messed up, to confess that they had fallen short of the glory of God. And as a symbol that they realized how much help they needed, they were to be baptized, to prepare themselves for the coming kingdom of God. Now Jesus says, you go out and you baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's important that we notice that it's baptism into the name, 
Not on the name, not really even in the name, but into the name. What is the purpose of that? Well, if I take a deed or a certificate of title of something I own, and I put it into your name, who now owns that? You do. Dale Mathis does. Thank you, Dale. <laughs> All right. So if we give you something and put your name, put it into your name, it's yours. And this act of baptism, Jesus says, puts you into the name, into the ownership, into the possession of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's to be owned by God. That he has his claim on your life. You are no longer your own, as Paul would later say. You have been bought with a price. You now belong to God. What a comfort and encouragement that is to know that, that God owns me. He claims me. I am his possession. I am his child. And it's the act of baptism that brings that into reality and makes that known to us, a historic, actual event in our lives that we can always go back to and say, I know it's true. Look at that. I remember it. I know it. It's also important that here that it's into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why do you think Matthew stresses that, that Jesus called this to be baptism into these triune name of God? Because he wants us to realize that we are baptized into the Father, the Creator, the one who made the whole universe, the one who can bring life out of nothing. Because there are some people that go down into that water that don't know if they have any life left or not. And they need to know that the God who first gave them life can give them life again. Not only baptized into the Father who is the creator and the, the, the ruler of the universe, but into the Son who is the Redeemer, the one who came to buy us back from ourselves and from the evil one, the one who came to bring grace and mercy and forgiveness into our lives. Therefore, those of us who go down in that water who are so disgusted with ourselves and so frustrated with ourselves, all the mistakes that we have made, we're baptized into the possession of a God who redeems, who restores, who reclaims. And we're baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, the God who comforts and encourages, the God who guides and leads the God ever-present. And those of us who go down into the waters of baptism lonely and dejected and lost are baptized into the ownership of a God who infinitely cares and will be with us. To be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit brings hope and celebration to anyone in any place in life, to the detached, to the isolated, to the alone, to the angry, 
to the deserted, to the depressed, to the grieving, to the hopeless, to the fearful, to the anxious, to the wounded, to the ashamed, to the tired. Make them disciples by baptizing them then into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then by teaching them to observe continually. Not just once, not just twice. You know, become a Christian doesn't mean that you did something one time. It becomes a desire of who you want to be all of your life. You teach them to live by the principles that I have taught about what life really is. You teach them to keep the things that I've taught you and I've commanded you. If we want to know those things, we go back to our Bible and we read again. What is it that God told us through Jesus? What what did Jesus tell us to do? In the book of Matthew, the main source is going back once again to that Sermon on the Mount. And where he crystallizes it, brings it together and says, here's what it looks like to be a disciple of mine. Here's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And quickly, some of the things he tells us is that if you want to be a disciple of mine, then you're to live a life that seeks reconciliation and peace in all your relationships. Folks, there's enough anger in the world. There's enough hate in the world. If you want to be a follower of mine, Jesus says, you commit yourself to peace and reconciliation, particularly as far as you can reach in your homes and among your friends. That is the life that you live. If you want to be a follower of mine, he goes on, you don't let your life be set and controlled by desires and appetites and lust. You control those so that they serve you for a better life. You do not let them control you to lead you off into all these things that can only destroy your life. If you want to be a follower of mine, you work on treating every person, even those people who don't like you, you treat them with love and in a way that benefits their lives. If you want to be a disciple of mine, he says, you have an active, rich prayer life. You're in constant communication with your God. If you want to be a disciple of mine, you forgive others. You live a life that gives grace and mercy to them. If you want to be a disciple of mine, you make the kingdom of God your priority and your passion. And if you want to be a disciple of mine, you treat others, not as they treat you, but you treat others as you wish they treated you. We could go on, there's other commands, but we get the point that if we truly want to follow him, then we commit ourselves to lives that are shaped by what he says is the real way to live. And at this point, he leaves us with the greatest promise and comfort that he possibly can. And know that I am with you every day until the end of this age. This is the promise he offers. This is the call he gives. After we've come to know Jesus, who he is, what he's about, here 
is the so what. Here is the what now. Is it for you at this time? Let's stand and sing.